Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews 4. And if you don't have a Bible, the fellas have some. They're making their way down the aisle. If you'll get their attention, they'll get a copy of the Scriptures to you so that you can follow along as we look at Hebrews 4 together. We have an outline as well inserted in your program so that you can follow as we see what God says in the first 11 verses of Hebrews chapter 4. Sometimes motivational speakers will ask, what gets you up in the morning? And then they will try to motivate you to have a cause for which you wake up every morning. There's another question that we ought to ask ourselves as well, though. It's not what gets you up in the morning, it's, it's what keeps you awake at night. Now, there might be physical answers to that. Maybe there's sleep apnea or something like that. But very often, it's not a physical issue that keeps us awake, virtually some of us every night or from time to time. Most often, it is the circumstances that are taking place in our lives. The worry that we have weighted upon our shoulders that we take to bed with us day in, day out, week in, week out, keeps us awake Worrying, anxiety, what keeps you awake at night? I remember when I was a kid, there was a commercial for Somonex sleeping pills. And they had the jingle, take Somonex tonight and sleep. I won't sing it for you, but that was the, the jingle. And I'm old enough that their commercial campaign back then had a little animated guy wearing a turban. Anybody else remember that? And he used to take a Somonex, and he would able, was able to go to sleep on a bed of nails. Somonex is that great that you could sleep on any kind of bed, including a bed of nails. Now, the pill part of that is important. Because the truth of the matter is, from time to time, every one of us has worries, anxiety, circumstances that keep us awake at night. And we might resort to something to help us go to sleep. But we've been doing that, particularly in America, and over the last few years, in alarmingly increasing numbers. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention looked at the drugs that are prescribed in visits to doctors and hospitals just a few years ago, 2005. 118 million prescriptions in that year were for antidepressants. Folks whose anxiety, whose worries, whose difficulties have gone now to another level. 118 million in one year. That makes antidepressants the number one prescribed drug in the country. It's prescribed more than high blood pressure medication, than cholesterol medication. And it's not just prescribed for adults. In an alarming number of cases, antidepressants are now increasingly prescribed for children. In a recent study, 11 million prescriptions for children. Now, there were 118 in 2005. Of that, nearly one in ten then 
was for children. Now, let me say from the outset, perhaps, in fact, in a group this size, if those statistics hold, then there are a number of folks who have been prescribed some of these medications. And if you are taking those medications, please understand I am not telling you stop taking them. I want to make that clear. That could be very dangerous. So I'm not saying that. I'm not giving medical advice from the pulpit. I am saying this, that looking to Somonex or Prozac or Zoloft or anything else should never be the first resort of the people of God who go through the anxieties, the difficulties, and the worries of living in a fallen world. And as a matter of fact, we're going to see from Hebrews chapter 4 that God says there is the ability to rest for His people that comes from the fact that they are His people, that they trust Him completely with everything that's going on in their lives. And so as a result, they have a peace that follows them every moment of every day. And when it comes down to lay their head on the pillow, they're able to do so with the tranquility and the peace that comes from God and transcends all understanding. And it's my desire, friends, that you would know that peace. That you would know the God who gives that peace and tranquility And if you're a professing believer in Jesus Christ, that that would become a reality to you in ways that perhaps it has not as a result of our time together. Now, one of the reasons that so many people are so down is because one could make the case that there's much more to worry about in our day than there was 30 years ago. Or at least we think so. But did you know that the world has been fallen since Genesis 3? Did you know that there have been evil people and the difficult consequences that come from sin throughout human history? And so perhaps it's not as bad as we think. Here is, here is perhaps what's going on. One contributing factor to our anxiety that for many leads to further levels of de- even depression is that we are more aware of how bad things are. We do live in a society that has a 24-hour news cycle. But I'm guessing that it would surprise you to know, believe it or not, that per capita, there are fewer children abducted today than there were 30 years ago. Does that surprise you? surprised me when I read it. Because if you watch the 24-hour news cycle, a child is being snatched every two minutes. There were, last year, the entire year, there were 115 abductions. 115. 115. So why do we think that things are much worse? Well, part of the reason is we have so much more information. And so we are really an uptight bunch, particularly those of us who are parents. You know, back in the day when I was a kid, you never wore a helmet when you went on a bike ride. As a matter of fact, if you showed up at a bike ride wearing a helmet, (laughs) you would need a helmet. I think about the places we went and the places we roamed freely. 
And mom would say, and my mom loved me dearly. She was a marvelous mom. She would say, be home when the streetlights come on. Right? But we're afraid to let our children go outside without a full security detail. Very often. One lady has written a book that you might, if you fit in that category, and many of us do, you might read this book called Free Range Kids. And Lenore Skenazy, who wrote the book, actually gave some statistics that are surprising. She said, according to crime statistics, the odds of a child being abducted by a stranger or slight acquaintance are one chance in 1,500,000. To translate that into more concrete terms, you would on average need to leave your child unprotected for 75,000 years before they would actually be picked up. And so, there are lots of reasons for us to be anxious. And the issue is not, are we, do we have issues about which we should be anxious? Even if we are misinformed, nonetheless, living in a fallen world has its problems and always has. The question is, how do we handle and to where do we repair to handle our anxiety? And friends, I want you to see in the outline that I gave you from Hebrews chapter 4 that we can indeed have rest. Rest that is better than Somonex, actually. Such that you can sleep on the bed of nails that is your life and your circumstances with complete tranquility. Notice verse 9 of Hebrews 4. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There is a very special rest for those who belong to God. And so we want to look together at what God says about that rest. And the first way we can have that rest, I have for you in your outline, is this. We can have rest. The rest that comes from God. The tranquility and peace that comes from Him if we trust. Notice verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 4. Therefore, since the promise of entering His rest still stands... Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now chapter 4 opens with a warning that's based upon the failure of God's people in the wilderness wanderings that are recorded in the first part of your Bible that we call the Old Testament. If you've been with us for our series, we've alluded to those now several times because the writer of Hebrews does so. Last week in our message, we were reminded of God's marvelous deliverance from the hand of Egypt on the part of his people. And as they emerged to go and take the land that he had promised to his people, early in their sojourn, they arrived on the banks of that land. God told them to go in and take it on his command. But they decided, as we saw last week, they had a better plan. We'll send in 12 spies, and we'll see if God's will can really be done today. We know the story. They sent in 12 men who came back with various reports. Ten of them said it cannot be taken. Two, only two, said we can do this thing. And the two who said we can do this, we can take this, were in effect, according to verse 2 of Hebrews 4, preaching a gospel to God's people at that time. Because you remember what the word gospel means? It means good news. 
And two of the twelve spies came back, Caleb and Joshua, and they came back with good news. They came back with a gospel of good news for God's people. We can do what God has said, and we can enter into the rest, into the land that God has given to us. And so here's what Joshua and Caleb said. Do not be afraid of the people who are in the land. We will swallow them up. Good news. We're going to take these guys. As a matter of fact, we will have them for lunch. To put it in another way, it's going to be a piece of cake. Good news. The gospel preached to God's people, but it was not good news for them because, verse 2 tells us, they did not combine that good news with faith. Many believed in God. Many certainly believed that there was a God and the God of Israel was the true and living God. They had just seen in recent days the mighty hand of that God. They believed, but they did not have faith. To put it another way, their belief was deficient. Only two of them believed. You see, because when verse 2 says... We have had a gospel preached to us just as they did, but that message was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Faith at the end of verse 2 could be described this way. It's an attitude of trust and rest in the promises and character of God. It's not just a belief that acknowledges there is a God. It's not just a belief that can recite the statement of faith. But rather, it is a belief that translates into a trust and in turn into a rest in this God. And they did not have that. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, the good news then was of no value to them because they did not combine it with this attitude of trust that issues forth in rest. Friends, did you know that there's a difference then between simply saying I believe and trusting and resting in the God in whom we profess to believe. Let me give you some illustrations of how that works. You and I can talk about belief in marriage all day long. But if you never exercise faith in marriage, until you've never really exercised faith in marriage, until you walk down the aisle and you actually say, I do. Larissa's been saying that to Joshua for several months now. and He's now got the faith. <laughs> or you can watch a guy push a wheelbarrow across a tightrope over Niagara Falls a hundred times. You can have the knowledge that he's capable of doing it. You can believe that he's capable of doing it. You can assent to the fact that he can do it. But you don't exercise faith in his capability until you're willing to get in the wheelbarrow with him. If you say, I do, what happens? You go on a honeymoon, then you set up housekeeping. And why do you do that? Because that's what married people do. And as a result now of not only saying I believe, but actually trusting and thus making the commitment to say I do, there is now a life change that goes with that. It changes the way I look then at my circumstances. It changes the way I go about my daily routine. It changes the way I order my life. Hear this, friends. 
when someone comes to Jesus Christ in faith, it's to radically change them. It's not just I believe that there was a person named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago and who got killed in a crucifixion. You can believe that, and James chapter 2 would say this, the devils believe as well, and they tremble. But true biblical faith is faith that is combined, according to verse 2 of Hebrews 4, with trust that in turn results in rest. And so you have great examples of the faith throughout the history of God's people where they not only professed belief, but they trusted and rested in the Lord. Do you all know the name Hudson Taylor, who was a missionary to China? Few of us have had more stressful lives and led a more frenetic pace than did Hudson Taylor. He was the founder of what's called the China Inland Mission. But despite all of the difficulties that he had before him, Hudson Taylor lived in God's rest. His son wrote this about Hudson Taylor. Day and night, this was his secret, just to roll the burden on the Lord. Frequently, those who were wakeful in the little house at our town might hear at two or three in the morning the soft refrain of my dad's favorite hymn, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. He had learned that for him only one life was possible, just that blessed life of resting and rejoicing in the Lord under all circumstances. While he dealt with the difficulties, inward and outward, great and small, that was his pattern of life. And friend, Christian friend, I'm here to tell you that there is rest for your soul in the tempests of the seas of life in a fallen world. You can have rest, first point in your outline. You can have rest, but you can have rest, and I can have rest, only if we are willing to trust in the Lord God. Secondly, in verses 3 through 5, our passage tells us this, that we can have rest not only in trusting in general, but trusting in particular in our God. Notice verse 3. Now we who have believed... Enter that rest, just as God said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above he says, they shall never enter, and notice the last two words of verse 5, they shall never enter, it's my rest. Now, what do these verses mean? We who have believed enter that rest. And the way that phrase, have believed, is translated, it's written in a way in Greek that indicates an action that is ongoing. We who are continually believing enter that rest. We have the opportunity as God's people to believe, that is, trust in Him such that in an ongoing way, we can have the rest that only comes from God. But God said, verse 3, I declared on oath in my anger, they will never enter my rest. Now, why would they not enter my rest? Because they did not combine it with faith. They did not trust God. 
And so they refused to go in. As a result, they were consigned to wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And God said, none of them who disobeyed me, save Joshua and Caleb, the two who were willing to do what I said, will ever see the rest that's represented by the land that I was giving to my people. I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work, bottom of verse 3, has been finished since the creation of the world. That phrase at the end of verse 3 is simply saying this, that God created the world and God himself has been in a state of rest ever since. And that rest that comes from God, in the verse 5 called my rest, God's rest, is now a rest that's available to you if you do not make the mistake that our forefathers have made in failing to trust in the Lord. And he proves that in verse 4 by saying, For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day, saying this, And on the seventh day God rested from all his work. At the beginning of verse number 4, the writer of Hebrews simply says, And somewhere God has spoken and said this, And we've encountered that a few times now in our study of the book of Hebrews where the writer will cite a passage from the first part of your Bible and simply say something like, somewhere it says, or someone has said. You all remember why he's done that? Because he wants the focus to not be on the human author but upon God. And so it's all God's Word. He's simply quoting God's Word and it has full authority, whether it came from the mouth or pen of Moses or Daniel or Isaiah or whoever it was, it's God's Word. And so, God's Word says, on the seventh day, God rested from all His work. Here's one other reason that the writer of Hebrews might say that. And simply cite it in that sort of general, loose way. You all remember that back in those days, people did not have copies of the Bible like you have in your lap right now. In fact, the Bible was still being written. And in fact, even after the Bible was codified some centuries after this was written, and all the books were collected together, it was some time later that there were chapters and verses added. So to actually find something would be somewhat difficult. So this was a rather common way of citing a passage of Scripture, simply saying, it says in God's Word. And what does it say at the end of verse 4? The seventh day, God rested from all His work. The rest that is promised to you and me, the writer is saying, is nothing other than the rest that belongs to, is experienced by, and comes from our God. You can have the divine rest that our God is resting right now, and that can be yours. And so at the end of verse 5, and again in the passage above, the passage above being cited, Psalm 95, they shall never enter, but notice, it is my rest. Now, some of the folks to whom the writer of Hebrews sent this letter would have been asking themselves this question. Is there any chance that this rest is available to us now, 2,000 years ago, since, in fact, it was forfeited by our forefathers just after the Exodus? God offered it. They didn't take it. So is it still available? And what the writer is suggesting here is it's available and it's, it's, it's a particular kind of rest that comes from God and it's available to you because it's a rest that goes well before the Exodus, 
well before the disobedience of the people of God in the wilderness. And it continues on into the present and is available to you and to me. And so what is that rest? What does that rest consist of? Let me give you three things that are not in your outline that the rest of God comprises. What kind of rest is it? Well, first it is a cosmic rest, I'll call it. It's a cosmic rest because the end of verse 4 says, on the seventh day God rested from all His work. The fact that there is no morning or evening mentioned in Genesis chapter 2 for the seventh day, as there was for each of the first six days, means that on that seventh day, God's Sabbath, it's still continuing. It's a cosmic rest that comes from God and continues to this day. It began with completion of the universe and continues on and on and so is available for His children. Its fullness, the rest of God, is available to all of us. It's a cosmic rest. But secondly, it's an an ideal kind of rest. The character of God's rest is the ideal of all sorts of rest, whether physical or mental or any other kind of rest. And let me give you three ways you'll know this ideal rest. It's a joyous kind of rest that you can have from God. A joyous rest. Do you remember when God created His world? Job chapter 38 says this, The morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Now why did they do that? They were echoing the joy of the Creator that carried into this Sabbath rest that comes from God. And so it's a a joyous kind of rest. But here's a second aspect of this ideal rest that comes from God. It's a satisfying, a deeply satisfying kind of rest. This is the repeated assertion of the multiple sightings regarding creation in Genesis 1 when, remember, God would create and then He would pronounce, it was good. It was satisfying. And when God created for the final time, He could look at His creation and He could say it was very good. And so what God has made and then finished His work He was satisfied with that work, pronounced it good, pronounced it even very good. The rest that God provides is joyous, and it's satisfying. But here's a third aspect of this ideal rest that you can have that comes from God. It is a, what I'll call a working rest. That is, it's a rest that does not say, I'm passive. It's not idle. It's active rest. It's a working rest. But in that work, the peace of God abides with the one who carries out the work. Wouldn't you love to know in all of your activities that you have the rest and the peace of God every moment of every day? Jesus was asked about working on the Sabbath when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago. And in John chapter 5, here's what Jesus said. My Father is always at His work to this very day, and I too am working. Now notice, Jesus was not denying that God rested after the seventh day, but it's a working rest. It's a rest that is satisfied, that takes joy in the work that He has done, and now in the work that He continues to do, 
He has this peace, this tranquility in carrying out his work. And God says that kind of rest can be yours. A cosmic rest that exists in the world that God has made and is available from him and to his people. And an ideal rest that is joyous and satisfying and is a working kind of rest. And I want you to see in verses 6 through 10 that that rest is absolutely available to all of those who know the name of Jesus Christ and who believe in him, not just in word, but actually trust in him for their daily sustenance and in all of their activities. Verse number six. It still remains that some will enter that rest. Skip down to verse number nine. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And that's why I say in your outline, this rest that comes from God is available to you now. Verse 6 says, some will enter that rest in the present. And there remains, verse 9, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So contrary to what the first readers of this book may have logically thought, they forfeited the rest that God had promised to them by not obeying and going into the promised land. The writer of Hebrews is saying here, the promise still remains and is available to his people. And he proves it in a number of ways. In verse 6, it still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. And so they disobeyed. The rest was not attained. And so is it still available? And the answer is yes, as in verse 7. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today. And when did he do that? A long time later. He spoke through David. As was said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So here's the point of verse 7. To the question, is this rest still available to us? Some 400 years after they disobeyed and did not attain the rest that God had promised to them, God wrote in Psalm 95, it's still available today. It was still available in David's day. And now, 2,000 years ago, the writer of Hebrews is quoting it and is saying it's still available in his day. And by extension, that rest is still available to you now. The fact that some did not attain it will not keep those who come to Jesus from attaining it in the here and now and looking forward in the future to the ultimate rest that God promises to his people. Well, here's another objection that some would bring up. They would say, okay, it's still available. It was still available even after they disobeyed, but indeed the next generation did go in and take the promised land. And so isn't the promise of rest now done because that generation did attain it, therefore it may not be available to me. And the writer of Hebrews answers that objection in verse number 8. Notice with me. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Now why does he mention Joshua specifically? Because you remember, Joshua was the one who actually led them in. And so they did attain this rest But the writer of Hebrews is saying that there is 
a greater rest that remains, that is rooted in the character of God, this cosmic ideal rest, that despite the fact that some of them did go into the land, they did not attain the full rest to which God's people look forward and that we have available to us even in the here and now. If Joshua had given it, then God wouldn't have been speaking about it later. And he did speak about it 400 years later. And he did speak about it 1,500 years later. And he does speak about it today for you and me. It's available to you and to me now. Now, here's another curious thing about verse number 8 in this passage. You see the name Joshua in verse 8? The name Joshua in both Hebrew and Greek is spelled exactly the same way as you would spell Jesus in Hebrew and Greek. And so the original readers of this would read, for if Jesus had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another another day. And so they would have to answer the question, is this speaking of Joshua, the son of Nun, N-U-N, in the book, book of Joshua? Or is it speaking of Jesus, the Son of God. And the context makes clear that it's speaking about Joshua who did not give them rest. But hear this, friends. The other Joshua, Jesus, is the one who grants this rest to his people. As a matter of fact, here's what the Bible teaches about the rest that Jesus will give to his people, this, this working rest, this satisfying rest, this joyous rest. The last book of your Bible, Revelation chapter 14, the Bible says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, who die in Jesus. They will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. These are people who have the rest that Jesus gives in the here and now, but they still labor and they still look forward to a future ultimate rest that God promises for the people of God. And that's why then verse 9 says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And that rest, divine, cosmic, ideal, joyous, satisfying, working rest, is available to you in the here and now as you look forward to the ultimate rest in the future. Who gets it? Verse 10. Anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. And so how do I achieve this rest that God promises to me now and ultimately fulfilled in the future? How can I sleep at night? How can I rest at night? How can you do that? It's for anyone who rests from his own work, just as God did from his. I hate to put it too simply, but you do what Hudson Taylor did. You cast all of your care upon him. All of the burdens of living in a fallen world, you cast upon Jesus. And this rest, this confidence, this tranquility will be yours. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ said this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Stop working to make it to heaven. And stop trying in your own efforts to overcome the difficulties of living in a fallen world. 
You cast your care and, upon Jesus and rest upon him, trusting him for every circumstance of every day. Now let me give you a few concrete examples of that, and I'll be done. I'm going to mention my dear wife here because she's a great example to me in doing the very thing that this text tells us to do. Sometimes life just gets overwhelming, doesn't it? Sometimes the to-do list is just longer than we feel that we can carry out. And in fact, many times it is. There's just more on there than I can do, than we can do. Many a time, my dear wife has looked at her list and she said, I can't get it done. And she has learned and she has been an example to me in doing this every time. Jesus, help me to do what you have given me to do with the best of my ability and to trust you with the rest. And she's made a habit of doing that. And it gives a rest and a tranquility and a serenity as you carry out this long to-do list. That surpasses understanding. And here's another thing that tends to happen. More gets done than we realized would have ever happened. God in His grace sends help. He sends people. He changes the circumstances. A meeting gets canceled. That can be a blessed thing sometimes. And you cross that off the list. And lo and behold, somehow, not in our power, but in His, it gets done. And who gets the glory? Last night, at our hayride, just before we got going, Kimmy got a phone call. It was one of those distressed phone calls. And so she came to me out in the parking lot, Tom's house slash parking lot, where the cars were parked. And she told me about it. And it's overwhelming sometimes. Lord, What can we do with this situation? How are we equal to the stats? And the answer is we're not. And so you know what we did? We did what he's taught us to do. We prayed together. And we said, Jesus, help us to help these dear folks. Use us to be your instruments in the lives of these dear people. We can't do this, but you can. And so we give it to you, and we rest and trust in you. Last night, after we got home, I got a phone call, a distress phone call. And I don't know what to do. And so I have to pray to the Lord, and I say the same thing. And friends, I can tell you this from my experience. And more important from the authority of God's Word, He works every time. He has never abandoned us in our labor for Him. And in this working rest that He provides for His people, if we trust in Him, and we trust in Him such that we will do what He says, and keep doing what He says, because we trust Him, because we know He's at work in this, even though I can't see it, and I don't know how it's going to turn out, I trust Him. And so we will move forward, Lord, taking the next step that you have told us to take. But we cast this upon you, and we trust you completely with the outcome. And God works time 
and time again in our lives and in the lives of those he's called us to serve. And friends, I'm telling you, he will do exactly the same thing in your life. There is a rest that remains for the people of God. But it's only a rest for those people who trust him. Not just say we believe in him. We trust him. You know what I was able to do last night then? I didn't take a Psalmonex. I didn't take anything. I laid my head down on the pillow with the tranquility that comes from God because I can rest assured that He is working in this situation and every situation. You can do that every night of your life. Now you have to come to the one who gives that rest the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do you do that? Realize that we sin in so many ways. One of those ways is when we take matters into our own hands. And when we live as though God is not in control, rather we're in control. And so realize that you're a sinner. One of the ways we sin is saying, God, I don't need you. I can take care of this. Think again, friends. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Recognize that Jesus Christ has done for you what you could not do for yourself. He died to pay the penalty for your sin so that you could have a relationship with this God from whom comes this rest. Repent of your sin. Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you with my life and receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow in just a moment. And many of us are going to be thanking God for the rest that only He gives thanking Him for giving us this rest initially, thanking Him for giving us this rest continually. But some of you need to come and establish a relationship with Him by coming for the first time to Jesus Christ. When we bow, you pray from your heart to God in your own words, Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe you died for my sin. And I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Jesus Christ, take my life. I want to follow you. I trust you completely with my life. Amen. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we thank you for this precious passage of Scripture, a promise to your people in the past in the present and in the future, that the rest that only comes from you can be had by those who have a relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, for the writer of Hebrews painstakingly making the argument that this rest was available and still is available. We thank you, Lord, for showing us how we avail ourselves of the rest that comes from you. It is simply entrusting completely in you. And yet, Lord... I struggle with sin. I struggle, Lord, when I can't see my way out. When I can't see the outcome, I sometimes stumble in trusting you. And I sometimes want to take a shortcut. And I want to do it my way. And I try to do it in my strength. It's always a disaster. And so, Lord, help me to continue to learn to trust in you the one who bids us come and cast your care upon me because I care for you. Help me, Lord. Help us to remember that every moment of every day. 
I pray for my dear brothers and sisters in this room and the various circumstances that they are enduring. You know every one of them. I know just a few. You know them all. Every one of us, Lord, has difficulties that impress upon us and would cause us, Lord, to not rest, to not be at peace, to not be tranquil in this very difficult and busy world. And we're tempted, Lord, to turn to other solutions than, than to you. I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Oh, Lord God, help them to learn as I am learning, to cast their care upon you, to do as you have said, to come to me, all of you who are weary, and I will give you rest. I pray that there are saints that are doing business with you right now. And I pray for any who have not come to the one who gives that invitation, the giver of that rest, the creator who ceased from his creative activity and rested. And though he's still at work in our lives, there's a tranquility, there's a rest about what he does that he makes available to us. Oh Lord, I pray that they're coming into relationship with you so that they can know the joyous and satisfying and working rest that you give. Lord, glorify yourself in our lives. Glorify yourselves in the mess of our lives. In the difficult circumstances of each of our lives. And Lord, you know every one of those circumstances. And you know we have them. Glorify your name in them. By raising up a people who handle their circumstances in a radically different way than the world does. The prescription I need. The prescription most of us need desperately, Lord, is not found in the form of a pill. It's found in a person, our Lord Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for loving us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.